Recording live from the Hoban Law Group here in Denver, Colorado, I'm your host, Eric Singular. We're sitting alongside president and founder of the Hoban Law Group, Bob Hoban. Today we are talking about the rapidly evolving landscape of cannabis law, and we are joined by Sean Hawking, the founder of the Cannabis Law Report. Sean, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you from uh, Sydney, Sydney, Australia on a, uh, a, a warm winter's day with, uh, with people. I apologize if you have any background noise. Uh, they, they do love a leaf blower and a strimmer here in Australia. So uh, everybody's out in their high-vis jackets making uh, as much noise as possible. But uh, otherwise, very well. Thank you. Well, we thank you so much for uh, for coming on and joining us today on the Hoban Minute. And there's really nobody better to talk about this this rapidly evolving landscape uh, than yourself. You've been documenting this industry. You've been uh, specifically the the cannabis law sector now for a number of years. Uh, tell us a little bit about the history of cannabis law, your intersection with all of this, and and uh, what you've seen. Uh, well, it, you know. Essentially, my background is in legal publishing for the last 30 years. Back in 2015, I moved from China, where I was living at the time, to Portland, Oregon, and noticed what was happening in the cannabis sector. So I thought, uh, no, none, of the, the, none of the bigger publishers or media people really will be interested in this for a couple of years. So I thought I'd just start reporting on it on a daily basis. And uh, essentially, at the, at the very beginning, I think I could... Uh, find about 150 lawyers uh, who dealt with cannabis in a sort of business sense at that time rather than, than criminal. And uh, over the last five years now, we're almost at, I think on my database, I have up to about uh, 17,000 who say that they are they are business-related cannabis lawyers, whether they be solo practitioners, uh, small practice areas in SMEs, or uh, the now the larger multinational and big national U.S. firms creating full-service cannabis uh, uh, practice teams across the country. Uh, so there's been there's been a huge change, but uh, as we're discussing this morning or today, uh, there's obviously about to be another huge change in the industry as uh, there's contraction across the uh, economy generally. Well, let's let's talk about that a little bit more. And so, you know, obviously, you're referring to the outcome, the the financial and economic implications of this coronavirus, and that simply there is going to be uh, less companies on the other side of this thing than there were previously. Uh, what do you kind of predict as far as uh, you know how that landscape might change? How uh, you know what companies might stay, which companies might go in the months or, or years to come? Well, I think uh, in the months to come, we're going to see a rather large contraction in the in the industry, both from the very top end, then obviously uh, from the, the supply side down to the down to the small farmer who may have. Um, moved out of the grey area into into regulated in various states, but uh, I worry that they might be forced back into the grey area because if we're looking at the the, the top end of the sector, you know, even the the biggest most financed companies are um, you know struggling desperately 
to, to keep their heads above water, both in Canada and the U.S., in terms of their share prices, in terms of them overhiring, overdoing everything, basically. Um, and I, I see, I mean, you know, if we talk in generalizations, there's probably, you know, there were probably 20 large companies. I see that being reduced down to probably about five, and you could use the same percentages all the way down through um, smaller and, and medium-sized you know, producers, processors, retail. Retailing might be the only area that, that I don't think it will grow, but I think it probably will remain um, you know, in the short term, but you probably see a contraction in that over the next 12 to 14 months as well. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of competing factors, but but I do I do see, you know, you'd hope there's only going to be a contraction of thirty percent, but I, I do think in the way that this industry has been financed over the last five years, we'd probably more likely see a contraction of about sixty percent. Well, Sean, you've you've uh, covered and, and been involved in many capacities uh, the legal industry uh, worldwide for for many many years. And as you look at the evolution of legal services that support the so-called cannabis industry, you know the industry that involves the marijuana side and the hemp side. Um, there's some characteristics or or perhaps stereotypes yeah. of where. Different sorts of lawyers come from. There are lawyers that come out of the the criminal practice. Well, over and, the years, uh, it, you know, dub themselves cannabis your, lawyers, your first and then the, there's business lawyers. But, but can you expand on that? Just some of the things you've right observed say, and uh, you know, seen a business opportunity coming out of um, dealing with uh, with uh, criminal and, and those sorts of issues, and, and, and they, they saw the the birth of the industry, and some of them moved. Uh, not so successfully, and some of them more successfully into into the, uh, the you know the the business side of of the sector. And yeah, you know, I'd say that specifically. You know, everybody would 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 I think concur with this that you know in states like Oregon, Washington, and Colorado first, that's where you saw most of those sorts of people you know build bigger practices based around the business of cannabis rather than the criminality of cannabis. And then as uh, other you know, states came in, and uh, you know, again, we're talking California, Nevada, now Illinois, uh, you could see, uh, and on the East Coast, as soon as people saw bigger companies um, coming out of the regulation in these smaller states, uh, at firstly, sort of SME uh, local state firms with maybe you know eighty or ninety partners, and they created a five to seven partner practice based around you know the business of of, of cannabis and subsequently hemp law. And over the there, there were a few bigger firms who thought about national practices uh, up to you know eighteen months, three years ago. Um, you know, I immediately comes to mind a firm like uh, Fox Rothschild, who uh, who seemed to be into that game earlier. Uh, but over the last 12 months, you'll find now that most big U.S. law firms and then some of those multinationals will have what, what they would describe as a um, 
full service practice. And essentially, none of, only one or two of them would be specialists in cannabis law, and then the rest of the the, the part, the rest of the of that particular group. And some of them seem to have groups that that imply they have up to 50 or 60 lawyers who can deal with cannabis issues and they would be specialists drawn from other practices you know, and uh, all, all across the board, obviously, um, from uh, from, you know, from IP related to, to obviously bringing companies to market, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, whether, those, whether those law firms have those practices in four or five months' time or they just essentially become bankruptcy practices, um, who can say at the moment? Uh, the law firms. Um, I, I've also reported and uh, been in the, in legal publishing now for, for thirty plus years, reporting on law firms. And one of the things I've been doing on a, a, another site that I run called PracticeSource.com, which is they're basically designed to provide information for legal information professionals around the world. If you're looking at what what law firms are doing at the moment, and uh, especially. If, uh, I concentrate here in Australia and in the UK as well as the US. I mean, they're contracting very fast, and they're not—they're not laying people off. They call it furloughing at the moment. Uh, but again, you're seeing a lot less work being done across a range of practices, while they strengthen the sort of um, the sort of practices that are obviously going to do well as we come out of the other side of COVID-19. And um, and I would see I would see that in in the um, in, in the bigger law firms with regard to cannabis, they're going to, I would say, these cannabis practices will probably become a much smaller version of what they were three or four months ago. Um, and you know, as we're aware, the, the big dream for later this year was New York and New Jersey and and thus some of the other states in the in on the East Coast uh, actually bringing in some sort of uh, regulation. That's now finished. I would, I would suggest until at the very earliest, mid or late next year. Um, so I think a lot of those firms will will plan accordingly. Well, Bob, I have a, a question for you, and it, the answer might be very obvious, but it's not. Uh, you know, as we're talking about the the history of cannabis law, it's not. It's not so obvious to me. Maybe it's not super obvious to our listeners. But you say, you know, some of the first generation cannabis lawyers, they were criminal defense lawyers. Why why is there a challenge in a criminal defense attorney coming over and trying to to do the work of a, a uh, commercial law firm such as Hoban Law Group? What what is kind of the history for, for why, you know, an HLG was so necessary to step into that place? So, yeah, you know, Eric, the, the, the idea that lawyers that practice in a specific area uh, have nuanced ways that they look at things, experience in the procedure, uh, understanding of how other practitioners in that practice area operate is really critical, particularly if you want to uh, understand how to do things at a very, very high level. And there's a lot at stake in this industry. While lawyers could sit down and analyze uh, a legal issue like any lawyer to put that into practice and to deliver something, particularly in front of a court or something that's highly sophisticated, uh, that nuance is lost. And after all, lawyers are, are not typically inexpensive. So you need to make sure that you get what you pay for, which is why that area of expertise is so critical. But, you know, Sean, as, as we've looked at the evolution uh, and the creation of the so-called cannabis attorney. We've seen firms in different places around the world initially look at cannabis as if it was a taboo. Uh, 
as if it were something that we shouldn't touch. It's not legal in the United States, or it may not be completely legal here or there. Therefore, we're going to stay away from that. But we've seen a dramatic turn in recent months, in recent year plus, towards, to your point, these larger firms coming in and literally overnight flipping on the lights and saying, we have a 60-person cannabis division. It begs the question as to whether or not these attorneys have ever done a particular cannabis deal or done a transaction in this environment. But that's almost besides the point. You've seen new industries take on legal services. How does this compare? Well, I mean, it's very interesting you should say that because I think a lot of these firms, um, they had one or two individuals uh, who have been um, pushing uh, that this could be a, a new practice area for them, and they they quietly did some work. But what was interesting at the time when I was reporting, if, if I asked them whether they were doing that work, um, well, you wouldn't get a yes and you wouldn't get a no. Generally, you wouldn't get an answer at all, even though you were you knew they were working on on, on deals. Uh, so they were for. A, a good period of time, they were almost embarrassed to mention that they had been working on a cannabis deal. Uh, I think a lot of that had to do, you know, obviously this is in the US, I'm talking about more than anywhere else, because there, there's hardly any firms still working in cannabis outside the US, or they're in the same state that the US was a few years ago. Um, so, as you say, it's it, it, without without a doubt, most of those practices uh, and the individuals, whether they be a partner or an associate or a senior associate, they, they normally like to like to put up put up for the cannabis work. Um, they they won't. They, it'd be highly unlikely that they would have actually done much cannabis or any cannabis work whatsoever until it was sent down from the the partner who'd been quietly working and developing uh, business relationships for the for the prior you know 12 months before they actually announced that they had a practice um i i as you well know, um, big law firms are quite difficult uh, organizations to communicate with in terms of if you're trying to get real information out of them, just like any large any large corporation, it's what they want to tell you is uh, only what you find out. So, um, you know, I think even even at this stage of the proceedings, you'll find most of the big law firms on the East Coast I, I I wouldn't say so much the West Coast because they have been working in, in the area for up to you know ten or twelve years previously with uh, sort of informal medical cannabis work. But I would say you know most of the people on the East Coast, and if you went over to London where there's two or three firms who say that they deal in cannabis, most of the lawyers, or most of the practitioners, I should say, wouldn't have actually done any cannabis work um, up till six, seven or eight months ago. It's a very recent thing. Uh, and that that's what's interesting going forward because they, they have spent all this energy creating these inverted commas cannabis practices and they may those, those cannabis practices may not exist or be a very slim version of what they were um, in you know, July, August this year. Well, so uh, in Australia, there's been recent policy action uh, that has set the foundation for a medical marijuana discussion. Um, there's also been a number of high-profile uh, hemp or CBD companies that are based out of Australia. Elixinol comes to mind in particular, uh, but not limited to Elixinol. So can you talk a little bit about, let's start with, how has the 
practice of law, to your observation, evolved in terms of who and what offers services in Australia and what is the future for cannabis regulation in Australia? Well, that's a very, very interesting question because to answer your first point, with Australia and law firms, we are where we were in the US in about 2016, 2017. So we've got two or three practitioners who say that they uh, they they practice in cannabis law and they like to keep uh, pretty quiet about it, uh, in, in, essentially to keep a, a almost information monopoly on the sort of service that they provide out to customers. So they won't be very public about the work that they do. As far as I'm aware, there is there is yet to be a, a, an Australian law firm who will declare publicly that they have. Uh, a multifaceted cannabis practice. Uh, that that said, I'm sure if you uh, run a company in the US and you wanted to, to to work with Australia and you made a couple of phone calls to some of the bigger bigger Australian law firms or uh, multinational, they would um, they would try and help you. But in terms of uh, if if I went and asked for lawyers to write me at this particular time in Australia on a number of issues, I wouldn't get a response. Now, this is very interesting, as you say, because um, uh, Australia actually has a you know, pretty sophisticated way of approaching medical cannabis uh, legislation and regulation, both at a state and a federal level. And a lot of work has been done. And there was recently um, a, 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 a sort of uh, another look at uh, a Senate commission on on what has been done and what needed to be improved to uh, to make sure that uh, people could access medical cannabis in a far better way than they had previously. And that report came out about three weeks, three four weeks ago now. Um, and you know it's very detailed and there's there's. There's both an, an, an industry, a R&D industry, and a very tightly controlled and regulated medical cannabis industry, which is, if anybody knows Australia, is the, is the way that the, this country is run, is that they, they love a regulation and they, they, they like to spend a lot, a lot of time preparing those regulations and before they put them into action. So I don't, for, for Australia, I'm... It'll be a while yet before there's. You know, it is the size of one U.S. state, so whether the market will ever be big enough to uh, carry a number of law firms competing with one another to do work on medical cannabis business in this country is still a bit of an open question. And, you know, Australia is very unlikely to regulate. Uh, um, adult use or recreational marijuana in, in, I would say, the next 10 years. I could, in the times that we live in, I could be completely wrong, and that, that, that argument could be turned on its head because they need tax dollars, but I find it very, very unlikely that that will happen in the current political and regulatory environment. Uh, so I think a lot of the a lot of the work that the that companies who are from the US or Canada uh, are doing here at the moment uh, are limited to very few lawyers who work very quietly and uh, and just work with their clients and keep that to themselves. Sean, I want to ask you. You know, you have a uh, a large network 
of stakeholders and and uh, you know an, a big audience, especially with cannabis law. What are the issues that you have seen people really care about in the last month with COVID nineteen? Um, are there articles that are you know getting more readership? What do you think people are really looking for right now um, as far as information related to cannabis law and how they're being impacted by this pandemic? I think people across the board just want more information about about the industry. Obviously, what they what a lot of people seem to be, you know, unsurprisingly, are interested in are which of the the really uh, big listed companies are going to see their way through uh, this whole process. Um, you know, as their as their, their share prices were tumbling before this in both Toronto and on on you know. On the New York exchanges, and I think that's that's really uh, what people are looking at most closely in terms of the, the traffic that I'm seeing t- to the stories is how are these people going to fare because they essentially will be the will will be the the canaries in the coal mine with regard to how the, how the rest of the industry is going to do on a on a national level. Um, there's there's a lot of employment issue. Um, Interest as well. Um, again, that's unsurprising because uh, a lot of a lot of a lot of these companies have, have you know had to let go or furlough. But essentially, in this industry, they've they've let them go between thirty and forty percent of their workforce within a matter of days. And of course, that reflects the wider economy anyway. But I think different to the wider economy uh, for. Um, Medium-sized companies and the large ones, uh, there's very little option that these people are going to be rehired again. That they're going to be, you know, these companies will have to be tighter, smarter ships to sail, essentially. Um, and, and that, you know, those are the two main areas I'm seeing people looking at at the moment in terms of the stories. Otherwise, people are just obviously looking at general information to get a sense of what might happen. I mean, and. The other thing is there's, there's so much conflicting information because obviously a lot of the information coming out of the industry at the moment is fed by uh, PR and marketing people for various organisations, companies, etc., um, selling up the idea that it's that you know everything's going to be fine and uh, the reality is otherwise. And I, I think we, we we really need to wait eight weeks before we see all that wash out and we actually see a reality of what's happening in the sector as people hopefully start going back to work. That's a great point. And it certainly does take a lot to filter past the noise. That's why we celebrate the work that you do. And and that's right. I mean, I think an important thing to remember is, you know, a lot of the money raised in this, in this, in this sector are, are from, you know, they're, they're not institutional investors, they're private investors. And so those private investors, obviously they're taking a big wash at the moment. Um, and where where is their money going to go um, when when we when we when we come out of the other side? And is will they think cannabis is safe? And um, you know, at the moment, I believe that they don't. And you know, money will probably um, start being redirected into areas of the economy that you know, obviously they see they see a bit of safety and growth, and not looking for really quick returns cannabis isn't that sector so i tend to be i you know i tend to not have 
the same overall positive uh, view of how the sector is going to do going forward to um, to many people because it, it's, uh, it's a factor of having to be a bit more realistic. And then I think you can plan better if you're realistic rather than hoping for the best. Well, we, we certainly appreciate that cautious perspective. It's uh, it's definitely an important one to share. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure in the time between when we talk to you next, the cannabis law landscape and the cannabis landscape in general is going to evolve. Uh, it seems to just keep evolving every single day, especially in the wake of this pandemic. Sean, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today and uh, stay safe down in Australia, my friend. Thanks, Sean. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Hoban Minutes special series on coronavirus and cannabis. You can head on over to hoban.law for more information on this podcast or the Hoban Law Group. If you have any ideas for subjects that we should be covering or any questions you want to pose to, to Bob or myself, shoot us an email at media at hoban.law. And stay tuned for the next episode on this special series, Coronavirus and Cannabis. <laughs>